0: We pray, kids start leaving, you're sitting down. Um, we, we, there will be more singing, more worship through song after the sermon. We, we split it like this intentionally. I think sometimes we, we can view music as a thing that gets me geared up enough to make it through a sermon. But what we want to do is we want to worship in response to how the Lord has revealed himself. And most often, most clearly, the way that God consistently reveals himself is through his word. And so we save a good bulk of, of, our, of our worship through song to happen after the sermon so that we can worship and respond in the moment to how God has revealed himself to us this morning. Um, it, it's a reminder that we're a, we're a supernatural people, right? Like that we, this morning, are dependent upon the living God, um, leaving his spirit here to move and work amongst us um, in our hearts to bring conviction, to bring hope, to bring healing. Um, to to work and move and to take his word that is alive and powerful and to pierce our hearts, to discern thoughts and motives and and intents, to know that some of us right now, we are blind to um, sin, that we're maybe not even aware that we have. Some of us are numb to sin that we know that we have. Um, Others are, are struggling to trust specific characteristics or aspects of God's character that we're asking him this morning to work and to speak and to move. Right, that no one sermon could, could possibly, from the mind of someone, minister to, to this many folks. And yet, God, because he's alive and his word is alive, can minister and speak to all of us this morning. Um, if you have a Bible or a smartphone or some device, you'll be looking at the text. We're going to be in Amos uh, chapter 6. <clears throat> Amos chapter 6. As you're turning to Amos um, or searching for Amos... Um, just a little bit of of recap. Um, Amos is a a, a lay guy, right? He is not a professional minister or prophet. He was a shepherd um, and ministered around 760 to 755 uh, BC, so roughly 800 years, a little less um, prior to Christ. He is from the southern kingdom. He has got a word, a message for the northern kingdom, Um, This is at a time in israel's history where they have split and there's 10 tribes in the north and two tribes in the south And god has given amos a message and beginning next week We're going to see because amos saw some visions And he's going to describe some of the things that he was given that he saw that's allowing him to have This message for the people Um, And and he has a message and is now ministering and calling to repentance the northern kingdom And where he's gone is, hey, religiously, you're on autopilot. You think that God will never touch you because they have peace, they have stability, they have wealth, they have a stronger military. This is really other than David and Solomon's reigns. It's the silver age of Israel's history. And they feel like they've arrived and that when the Lord shows up, it will be to vindicate them and it will be to bless them even further and to hold them up even higher And Amos is here to tell them, the Lord is going to show up and the Lord's not going to be pleased with you. The day of the Lord is not a day of of blessing and vindication and celebration. It will be a day of judgment because you have walked away from him. You have been religious and have left God. And some of you who have been with us for the last um, five or six weeks may feel like part of Amos's message is um, got a lot of repetition in it. And ultimately it does we need to remember that for five years He was kind of calling the people to one thing and so he has a similar message that he's calling them to We also have to be reminded though that repetition is the mother of all learning Right that, it, that if we're honest, um, all of us this morning know some ha- healthy habits that we should implement Right. We don't need to be convinced of them. We just haven't done it right whether it's financially whether it's with our health ...whether it's with um, our eating, any of these things, right? There are things that we could do, even spiritual disciplines. You don't need to be convinced, right, that the Bible is true and that you should read it and pray. And yet we can struggle with it. Um, Jude is four years old. And every day I tell Jude, hey, you can't go outside without telling somebody. And every day, if not once, multiple times, Jude leaves the house, right? And I have to run out there. And every day he is disciplined in the same manner. And he's told, hey you got to tell somebody, okay, Dad. And he does it again, right? That we understand that repetition is not a a fun component of parenting. It's not a fun component of discipline. It's not a fun component of of much of anything, but it's a necessary component. And so would we be willing to continue to engage in Amos' message, trusting that the repetition that the Lord has sovereignly provided is for our benefit and good? there's a reason that we're sitting and soaking in this heavy prophetic message. So let's, with that being said, let's pick up in Amos 6. Amos continues. "'Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes.' Pass over to Cana and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster, and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory, who stretch themselves out on their couches, and eat lambs from the flock, and calves from the midst of the stall. ...who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp... ...and like David invent for themselves instruments of music... ...who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils... ...but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile... ...and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there anyone still with you? And he'll say, no, and he'll say, silence, we should not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Karnam for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from the Lebo Le- Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. So chapter 6 is what we would call a woe. Woe is not a word we use a lot unless you're riding a horse, right? Um, and that's a different woe. So a woe, as we begin here in verse 1, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Woe may just kind of run right past us as a spiritual word that we're not real confident. You hear it this way. Disaster to you. Catastrophe to you. Misery to you. Tragedy to you. That's what woe is. It is catastrophe. It's disaster. It's misery. It is tragedy. So Amos is not popular, right? He's saying, look, to those of you who are at ease right now in the northern kingdom, disaster, tragedy, misery, it's coming for you. It's coming. And he says, to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Remember, um, Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom. Samaria is the capital of the north. And so he is specifically speaking to the upper echelon here. Those who feel secure and at ease. And they feel this way because their military is strong. Their borders have been expanded and grown um, to, the, to the uttermost um, up to the, the, the days of Solomon. Right. So they have land. They have military might. They have wealth um, because there has been relative peace and stability for the for under King Jeroboam's reign for the last 40, 50 years. And that they believe ultimately that God is for them and will not touch them, right? And so in every area, they feel at ease, they feel comfortable, they feel stable, they feel like, hey, we've kind of got it. And they've put things on cruise control. And so verse 1, Amos loves sarcasm. And so after he tells them, hey, disaster to you, catastrophe to you, he then says, because He refers to him, you're the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. And so he's saying, hey, disaster to you who call yourself notable, who think that you're the foremost and first of all the nations. Right. Who the nation comes to you looking for peace and for justice and for righteousness. And you send them away. We've already seen that that justice has gone, that they take bribes, that they have taxed the poor that they have enslaved their own people he's like they're they come to you for these things and you send them away without you think you're notable and in verse two he begins to just mention some places and he says Cana and Hamath the great and gath he, he's beginning to mention the first two are cities to the north and gath is to the south these places that were were known and prominent who in the recent history within the last hundred years have been laid to waste by Assyria and so what he's doing is he's saying this that, that most likely this was some propaganda that the leaders um, in the north would have said "Is hey look at these cities, we're better than them you, right? We're, we're mightier, we're stronger than them what Amos is doing, he says hey, you remember those cities? They were great they were powerful, they were mighty they were wealthy are you better than these kingdoms? is your territory greater is there is your territory greater than theirs? what he's saying is this You remember their history, and they are no more. Why do you think this can't happen to you as well? Because you feel secure on the mountains of Samaria. And so verse 3, he continues. So you put far away the day of disaster. He's saying they have blinded themselves. They have kind of just put away this idea that destruction or that anything bad could happen. And they've just put it away far enough that they're now beginning to forget that it's an option. Right? They're, they're, they're blinding themselves to this. They're numbing themselves to it. They don't want it to be talked about or to be reminded of it anymore. And bring near the seat of violence. This word seat of violence here this is, means reign of terror. That they are not only numb and blind to the fact that disaster could come to them. He's like, but you have been, you have actually had a reign of terror over the poor and the downtrodden in your own country. He's like, and yet these horrific things that you have done, you seem to think that there's no way that your city, that your nation, that your country would ever be judged or laid to waste. He's like, how can you be so blind and so numb to this? So he begins to give some specific examples of why they, of the ease and the comfort and the security in which they are lounging in. He begins this in verse 4. Look, destruction, catastrophe, tragedy, misery to those who lie on beds of ivory. Now listen, ivory has been a a hot commodity for forever, right? So the normal bed was not made out of ivory. He's talking to those now who are leaning into lounging and luxury, who are spending money on things that were unnecessary. You stretch yourselves out on their couches you eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. So listen, meat would not have been a common everyday thing. You would have, They would have subsisted on grain, on fruits and vegetables, and meat would have been a celebratory thing. It would have been a holiday thing. It would have been an occasional thing. And so he's saying, you are gorging yourself. You are gluttonous. You're eating meat all the time. Not only that, you have calves in stalls that you're just fattening up while others are hungry, while others are going without he continues not only are you right like lounging in luxury not only are you gorging yourself he says you sing idle songs right there's just this like sense of merriment right that there's this this party that is going on and they're just ignoring the reality of the world around them what's going on with their countrymen that they are drowning it out with song and with drink and with food and with fine things. Verse 6. You drink wine and bowls. Might to say wine and bowls, right? It's the idea of, like, you're not even concerned about wasting it, right? You're not sipping it from a cup. You're just, like, pouring it back. You're not worried about it hitting the ground. You're not worried about like, he's like, you are just, you're, you're wasting. You're, you're bathing and anointing yourselves in the finest oils. You're drinking wines and bowls. And it's the idea that he's kind of bringing here is you are in this like a drunken stupor of gorging yourselves, of, of pampering yourselves, of taking all the self-satisfaction you can while injustice is occurring all around you. And you think nothing bad's going to happen. No judgment would come our way. Listen to what how he ends verse six as he's described these things. He says, but you're not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Now, typically, Israel is not called right in in the name of Joseph. So why would he say this? Why would he say you're not grieved over your sin? You're not grieved over the ruin of your nation. You're not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Remember Genesis 37, the story of Joseph. Joseph. That is Joseph shows, out, shows up out in the field with his brothers... ...who are tired of his dreams, who are tired of his visions... ...they're tired of him thinking he's better than them... ...decide, let's kill him. And they end up throwing him in a pit. And then, in the very next verse, it says they sat down and had lunch, right? They begin to eat. And while they're eating this meal, their brother is in a pit... ...as they're trying to decide, are we going to kill him or not? And ultimately, from that moment, some slave traders come by... ...and they sell him into slavery... So the scene that Amos is trying to bring forth is a group of brothers sitting and eating and enjoying the day while another brother is dying in a pit and is sold into slavery. And he says, you are the brothers sitting around drinking wine, drinking the, or eating the food, singing songs. You're in merriment and you have turned a blind eye to your brothers and sisters in the world who are dying at your hands. Because of your burdensome taxes. Because of your foot on their back. Because you sell them into slavery. Because you take bribes. Because you have crushed justice and righteousness. He's like, you're not grieving over sin. So church, even for us, as we work our way through this passage, would we be reminded that there is an expectation of us that we grieve sin. That when we see sin in our own lives, that we would grieve it. Because it's an affront to God. But that we would also grieve it as a a city, right? Or as a nation. That we would see sin that is called right and good. And that we would grieve over it knowing that God is not pleased. That it's not okay. That we would grieve. Remember in verse 1... He says, look, you're the notable men of what? The first of the nations. In verse 6, he says, you drink um, wine in bowls and you anoint yourselves with the finest, with the best, with the first oils. Right? He's taking this, this idea of first. And he says, you think you're the first of the nations. You're the first men of the nations. You're taking the first, the best of all things. And listen to what he says in verse 7. Therefore, because you want to be this, because you're not grieving over the sin You will now be first. You're going to get what you want. You're going to be the first in exile. And when they come in and when judgment comes and this nation is wiped out and destroyed and people are led into exile, we'll make sure you're at the front of the list. You're the front of the line. Right? Amos is not messing around in chapter 6. Right? His message here is harsh and it is strong. And he is saying disaster to you, catastrophe to you, and you'll be first because of what you're doing right now because you're not loving your brothers and sisters because you're not honoring God you're not reflecting his image you simply are worried about yourself and your own image and your own pampering and making sure that you are taking care of in ease and luxury and comfort so he continues then in verse 9 and he sets up this scene and the idea is okay that 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 invasion has happened. earthquake has happened. That, that judgment has happened. And that maybe there are a few people left. And he says, so if ten men remain in one house, right? And it's almost like this, okay, are we, are we good? Did we make it? They're all going to die, right? And Amos just kind of like cuts the legs out from underneath it, right? And he says, they all, these ten guys are in one house. They shall die. Verse 10, and one's relative, and he's speaking of an uncle here one who anoints him for burial that would be his job they're searching right they're they're walking through the the rubble and the tragedy and they're looking for bodies to take care of to honor and burial they're looking for survivors listen and so he says so he's in the innermost part of the house looking to bring out corpses bring out bones and someone will say is there anyone still in there is there anyone else left and that one is going to hear and say no And he's going to say, be quiet, silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. And here's what Amos is trying to paint. That you know that God's here. And that the point was totality of destruction. So don't speak. Don't talk lest he come for us too. Right? He is not painting a pretty picture here. He is painting a strong, violent picture of saying the Lord is coming and he sees and he knows and he is in control. And there will be fear And this is not who they think God is. This is not what they anticipate going on here. There's a reason that Amos is not creased in your Bible. Right? Like that you don't come to this section of scripture often. But it's because they have not trusted God. They have not followed God. And they have mocked him. Right? By not being just and righteous. By being religious without loving or treasuring God. So, Amos continues. And he's, you can tell he's trying to get their attention. Because again in verse 13, he, he mocks them. He says, you who rejoice in Lodabar. And so Lodabar had been a military conquest that they had recently had. He begins to hit on their recent history. And another in Karnam. He, he, he names these two military conquests that they were victorious, right? That they're boasting in, these empty boasts. But Lodabar... Means nothing. Like that's literally what it means. So he says, you who rejoice in Lodabar... He's saying, you who rejoice in nothing. You rejoice in nothing. And then you say, have we not by our own strength... Not God's. In our own strength. Have we not captured Carnam for ourselves? Carnam meant horn or double horn. Which was a word that meant strength. So he's saying, you say... We celebrate Lodabar, which means nothing. So he's mocking them. And then he says this. And then you say you've taken Karnam by your own strength, right? Because it means strength. In your arrogance, in your pride, you have completely left the Lord. That you think that you can do it by your might. That your security is not in God being yours. But it's in your wealth, and it's in your might. It's in your wisdom. It's in your own power. So there. Therefore, Verse 14. For behold, I will raise up against you a nation. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from Lehobo Hamath to the brook of Arabah. So he goes back to the boundaries that Solomon had set as a nation. And he says, they're going to come in and they're going to invade. And they're going to take you over from north to south. There will be nothing left. Right? Like, Amos 6 is not super encouraging passage right because he is saying look this is what you've done and here's what god is going to do because of it if we go back to verse 12 amos lays out three absurdities here's what he says do horses run on rocks and what he's really referring to here is like a rocky cliffside right right on the ocean it's like do horses run here and people would obviously say well no Right, Their hoofs couldn't take it. That's not where you take horses. They don't run up a mountain. Right. That's not what horses do. He's, he wants it to be absurd. And then he says this. Do you plow there with oxen? He's like, do you plow the ocean with oxen? Again, this just absurd picture of, of oxen plowing the sea. And they're like, no, no, we wouldn't do that. The third one. But you have turned justice into poison. And righteousness... The fruit of righteousness, the sweetness of righteousness, this meant to be this good taste in culture and society, you've turned it into wormwood, which was known for being bitter. So he's like, You understand that you don't run a horse up a cliff, and you understand that you don't plow the ocean. Why can you not see the absurdity of the fact that you have turned the moral and social values, the religious values of your, of your people on their head? It's just as absurd. He's like, you would never have run a horse up. You would have never plowed the ocean. And yet you have made justice and righteousness taste bad. And it should feel just as absurd as what I've just told you. That is your judgment. That is is what you're guilty of. And because of it, God's saying, I'm going to deal with you. They wanted to boast in military victories. Right? Maybe they would have even said, yeah, man, we're able. If we want to run a horse up a cliff, we can do it. If we want to plow the ocean, we can do it. And he's like, but you, you don't turn and notice. There's no lament. There's no pain. There's no loss over the fact that for your people, justice is bitter. And righteousness is bitter. You don't even blink at the fact that that's what you've done in your country. And you're supposed to be mine. And you're supposed to be reflecting my image, which is just and righteous. And so we go back to the one verse we haven't looked at, verse 8. And God says this. The Lord God has sworn by himself declares the Lord the God of hosts. So he just kind of says, in totality, in all that I am, as the Lord, King and Sovereign, As Yahweh divine, the God of righteousness and justice and holiness and redemption and wrath. And the Lord of hosts, which is all powerful because I am over all. He just kind of says, by all of my nature, by all that I am, by all that you should know me as, I want you to hear something. I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. This is the woe. That God is going to wreak havoc on them. And he's saying, I'm I'm telling you, I'm going to do it by my name. Because you're guilty. Because of the absurdity of the fact that you have turned the culture completely backwards and completely wrong. And he says in verse 3, and you don't think this day is going to happen. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. And I want you to know that I did it. It's why they're going to walk through, looking through... um, wreckage and and rubble saying shh don't let god hear us we know who did it in proverbs sixteen five, just a reminder everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the lord be assured he will not go unpunished right, he's reminding them like pride is no small thing because you think you don't need me You think that in your strength that you've got all of this dealt with and done. You swear that you can do it in your strength. And I'm telling you that I'm coming for you and you will not stand. So here's where we're going to finish this morning. Right? Super uplifting passage. The people of the north had sincere belief. Right, like they 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 thought their religious activity was keeping God at bay. They thought that right that He wouldn't come for them. Like they had real belief. It was wrong belief, but it was sincere belief. Church, would we be reminded this morning of this that there are many who have sincere belief that is wrong about God? So I want you to imagine for a second um, you're driving down the highway, right? And you got your cruise set on seventy-five because it's seventy-five. Right? And you're not speeding. And as you are in the left lane passing a semi, what you don't know is you've just passed a sign that says the speed limit's dropped to 65. And you pass him, and with uh, sincerity of belief, I'm not breaking the law, you're driving 75 down the highway until the lights come on behind you. And with sincerity of belief, you're like, I don't want to do anything wrong. And in sincerity of belief... You've broken the law. Right? Because you've missed something. And what God is telling his people through Amos... Is you think you know who I am and you've missed it. And as sincere as your belief is... It has to be right belief. It has to be right understanding. We have to see God rightly and clearly. Because they're presuming God won't come for us. And they're wrong. He will come for them. They're presuming that they cannot make God upset with them and they're wrong and they think that he's pleased with their empty religious activity and they're wrong and so the sincerity of it does not change the fact that they're wrong church we need all of scripture that reveals all of God's character listen Amos may make us really uncomfortable It may reveal some aspects of God's character that make us, God, what are you doing here? But if if we miss that, then we start to view sin as really small. And the cross doesn't loom very large because there's not much to be saved from because we were doing it mostly pretty good. And Jesus just kind of gives us a shove up into the treehouse of heaven, right? But when we see that God is holy, that he is just, that he cares that we rightly reflect his image of righteousness and justice, and that when his people don't do it, that he intervenes and brings judgment, right? then we have to deal with who can stand before this holy God. And the answer is is none of us. And then Jesus enters the scene and stands before this holy God and absorbs the wrath of God meant for us. He takes it upon himself. But because he had been perfect in life and obedience, because he went to the cross innocent and then absorbs it and satisfies the wrath of God and then beats sin, Satan, right? And death. He then invites us in and says, now, not only do you not have to fear this God, you have access to this God. Church, if we just assume we have access because we're Americans or because we do some religious activity, we're wrong and we actually are facing the wrath of God that will come for us someday, either in Jesus' return or in our death. Or we can stand at peace with God because of the cross. Right? So that Amos' story isn't our story because jesus has satisfied it for us we need all of it so that we can see rightly the people of israel at this day and age had made religion a transactional agreement with god hey we'll do some sacrifices we'll show up at the shrines we'll do some religion for you and you bless us like you just pour it out on us and we'll do what you want but we don't want you just what you can give us and so for for many that live around us, maybe for some of us in this room, we have this sort of transactional agreement with God. God, I went to church. I need a good week. I gave some money, so bless it. I'm doing what you told me to do, so give me mine. And we can begin to have these sincere beliefs that are wrong. I remember as a, as a young man, for, there was a period of my life where I believed that because I loved Jesus and was doing what I was supposed to, that nothing bad could befall me. And that was not an accurate belief. But I believed it for a long time of thinking, there will not be any financial difficulty for me, right? There will not be any major sickness. And if there is, there will be tremendous healing, right? Like that I just believed that God would not allow something to come against me because I loved him. And I thought there was this like transactional, I'm doing my part, you're doing your part. And that is not an accurate depiction of what happens in scripture, And so that sincere belief was wrong. Because God says that he actually uses suffering to to shape us and to mold us into the image of Jesus. And Peter would say that we follow Jesus in that. And that he does refining in us. So why would a transactional type agreement come out? Because they no longer delighted or treasured in God church this morning if you don't delight in jesus if you don't treasure him then religious activity feels like a chore and it feels like a burden and it feels like i've got to get something good out of this or i'm not willing to do it why because it strikes at our desire for comfort and of ease because to obey jesus puts us at odds with the world To obey Jesus means it's not all about money or power or relationships or pleasure or self-serving, right? It's not. And so to obey him means there's discomfort and a lack of ease sometimes. And we're like, no, no, God, I want the easy life and eternity. And you do it all. And I mean, if I'll show up occasionally. And he says, no, 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 no. Follow me. Treasure me, delight in me, cherish me, and realize that I'm better than all the other things. That I'm better than those things, right? Because, listen, if we just think about a couple of sin categories here, greed says this. Greed says, God isn't enough, and he doesn't satisfy me, so I need more. Power, relationships, money, whatever. And people then become expendable because they're my way of getting what I want, and it's certainly not God. Right, if we think about fear, fear is losing what I crave control, money, relationships, power, reputation. And when we realise I'm not actually in control because God is, He's the God of hosts, He's sovereign, He's Lord, now people threaten me and God threatens me because I can lose what it is I need most, and it wasn't God to begin with. Right? That sin, right, it, it changes the way we view people and it changes the way we view God. And if we're not careful, in sincerity, we can create a religious system where we pick and choose the stuff that we're good at. And God's pleased with us, and he's okay with the areas I struggle. He doesn't really feel that strong about those anyway. And I dictate to God what life looks like. And I sincerely believe that I'm right with him. When he's asked us to be about justice and righteousness, and we think that we can flaunt that and him be okay with it, that we could be at peace with him. So church, here's here's the last thing. The point of Amos isn't to feel bad. It's not guilt. It's not judgment. It's that what God wants is us. He wants us. He wants us to want him. And in Christ, we can be transformed. This isn't a do better do better right this is we need freedom from our sin we need transformation we need to look like jesus and as we treasure and cherish and follow and are transformed by him now greed begins to go away because we want to be generous because god has given us everything more than money right and and we don't want to be lustful anymore we want to be loving because we don't see people as objects we see them as created in the image of god Right? That we want to serve and not just have ourselves served. Because Jesus came to serve and we want to be like him. And we begin to trust the Holy Spirit to guide us. And we begin to trust that God is in control and that's actually a good thing. right? And we begin to take our hands off the wheel that we weren't controlling anyway. right? That it's not try hard, do better, but it's meet Jesus, be freed and transformed. And then delight in him and cherish him and follow him. Because he's taken us back to our father and we're avoiding everything Amos is talking about. Because we got the good thing. We got the better thing. We got the best thing. We got God. And so here's our reminder this morning. Church, our hearts are bent. They are tuned to want ease and luxury and comfort. They are. And we have to guard our hearts to see how God feels about those things because they become false gods that we want and we will hold on to, right, instead of wanting God. So this morning, would we be willing to ask him what comfort, what ease, what luxury do I currently have in my life that I'm looking, right, to stuff, to blind myself, to numb myself to the fact of what you've really called me to that might mean a little pain, a little discomfort as I strive to be obedient. Listen, he's alive. He'll answer. He'll speak. His word will speak. So let's be willing to ask those questions, to let him examine our hearts, and then to know that that is our tendency, our proclivity, and to fight to look like Jesus as we follow, trust, and treasure him. Right? And so we can take a passage like Amos 6... And see the hope and the glory of Jesus at the cross. That Amos 6 doesn't have to be our story. And that we can delight in God. Listen, the band is going to come up now. We're going to sing to our King. Um, I'm going to pray for us. Uh, If you'll remain seated until the band begins to sing. Take this moment as a time to pray, to ask, to let the Spirit minister and speak to you. If you need someone to talk to, there'll be some men and women in the back of the room. Feel free at any point to get up and visit with them. Let's pray.